Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is MLS Commissioner Don Garber. We've had some great guests lately, including Ted Lasso's Jason Sudeikis and Brendan Hunt, Kate Abdo and Arna Friedrich, along with many others. So check those interviews out. It would be huge for this podcast growth if you could subscribe, recommend us to your friends, and take just a little time to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. Now, here's my interview with Don Garber. The MLS Cup final between Columbus and Seattle is set for Saturday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on Big Fox. And our guest now is MLS Commissioner Don Garber. Don, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's great to be great to be back, Grant. So as you said, we've done this more times than I could remember from hotel suites to in our offices. And it's uh, fun to continue it, albeit uh, from our respective homes with my dog barking in the background. <laughs> Can you hear that? Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure my dog will chime in at some point here. It's been a, a crazy year, obviously. Um and just, you know, congrats on getting through it to, to have this final. Um, I, I do want to start with a question about the final. It's taking place in Columbus, Ohio, uh, a place where the virus is prevalent right now. We've already seen Saturday's Ohio State-Michigan football game there get canceled uh, due to Michigan COVID cases. Given the testing situation on both MLS finalists right now as we talk on Wednesday, are you full speed ahead for your final to take place? Oh, absolutely, Grant. You know, uh, I, 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 I sympathize with one of the biggest college football games of the year being postponed, and I feel for our broadcast partner, Fox. Uh, but our uh, testing regiments have been, you know, very, very focused from the beginning of the pandemic. We've got one more game to go. We've got a great routine down. There will be fans in the stadium, at least as of today, though that could potentially uh, change, I would, I would guess, in the next couple of days, though I don't expect it would. A uh, very small percentage of fans will be in the stadium. There'll be a very, very minimal number of, of staff and operational people. Our presentations, both before and after, will be very modified from in the past. And uh, it is uh, good that this season is over. It was one to remember, and I'm pleased that uh, on Saturday we'll be, be completing it. Now, most of this interview is going to be looking ahead to the future, but I do want to look back just a little bit. Uh, you said earlier this week in your State of the League that MLS had lost around a billion dollars this year due to COVID, that the losses were deeper than expected. From your personal perspective as the commissioner, what was the single hardest moment for you in 2020? You know, I think it Grant, was probably the discussions with our players. Uh, you know, there were there were difficult moments from the first day of postponement in mid-March to where we are today. So every day has been difficult. There have been very few that I would turn to and say were easy or routine or even uh, focused on a new normal. Uh, but the discussions with the players were, were difficult. Uh, league staff, as you've known, take, has take, taken major salary reductions. We've had recent layoffs. Our clubs have been experiencing enormous um, restructuring of their businesses to try to manage what is a billion dollars in lost revenue, probably a bit more. Uh, and our players uh, participated in taking reductions, but getting there was difficult. And, and as you know, Grant, uh, you've been around this with me 
longer than I can remember, every negotiation between management and players is difficult in any league, uh, in any sport. Uh, but that was probably the most difficult period. It wasn't a singular moment, but it was a difficult period for sure. You mentioned this. We saw recently that MLS headquarters laid off 20% of its staff. Is it going to be possible to get the things done at league headquarters that you need to get done? Is there any chance for rehiring some of those people once we're on the other side of the pandemic? Well, I'm certainly hoping to rehire and refill positions. And and Grant should be noted, we've had many, many open positions that we weren't filling as well. And that puts stress on the system for those people who now have been working remotely and working every day, probably most without even days off for the last eight or nine months. Uh, so I do expect when we get back to having uh, the ability to recapture revenues from uh, game day operations that we ought to be able to refill those positions. And, you know, anytime you go through restructuring and you live through one in being in the media business, it's very painful. It's painful for those that are losing their jobs that have had great loyalty to a company. It's painful to the culture of those people who are still there and and even painful uh, for those that are making those decisions. These are some people that I've worked with for 20 years. And uh, it's uh, it's uh, a, a part of the enormous challenge and, uh, and difficulty of managing a business, particularly the live event business in the middle of a global pandemic. You had what turned out to be a successful bubble tournament in Orlando this past summer. Is there a chance that the league could do these single site tournaments like that in the future, even in 2021? Well, I don't anticipate we'd be looking to go back to a bubble in 21. Certainly there's some unique things that uh, we are uh, uh, have been looking at. And certainly there's been lots of buzz about, could you play tournaments like CONCACAF is going to be doing to complete the, uh, the, the Champions League? Can you play certain events in a bubble? Are there things that we can do differently? Can we use the pandemic to be innovative in how we rethink our businesses going forward? Certainly there's no plan to do that uh, for the start of our season in 21. What I will say, and I made this comment in my State of the League address, Grant, I think that those that have been involved in putting on the bubble and creating the MLS's back tournament, all of the, the, the players who you know, were away from home and playing multiple uh, times a week uh, at, you know, as you know, at some days we had games three times a week, our business and uh, operations and marketing and broadcast people created virtual stadiums out of a youth soccer complex at Disney. Uh, it was a remarkable undertaking, but it was also enormously expensive. And uh, you've heard about the costs of operating bubbles in the other leagues. You know, it, don't imagine in any way that it's any less expensive for MLS, frankly, more expensive. We're not playing in an arena. You know, we were playing in a massive uh, complex with weather impact and heat and all sorts of other challenges, uh, not the least of which was producing all those games. You talked a little bit about the possibility in your State of the League address about the invoking the force majeure clause in the CBA. Uh, which would set up a, a new negotiating process for a new CBA. What are the chances of that happening at this point from your perspective? You know, it's too early to speculate, Grant. I mean, clearly everything that we're hearing about uh, return to normalcy and and a, uh, a, a widely available vaccine uh, that would allow uh, us to be able to have our stadiums fully open to fans is still at some point in the future. We know it will come at some point in 21. Early indications are it'll be later in the year as opposed to earlier in the year. And that's not just uh, 
understandable, but but fully supported. We want to have healthcare workers, and we want to have uh, those that are on the front line. Those are the most vulnerable teachers, and those that really need to uh, be ensured that they're protected and safe to get the vaccine before the general public. So I don't want to speculate on timing. We negotiated hard with our players on a force majeure clause. It was probably the most important part of uh, the uh, the re. Uh, doing of our CBA, but uh, let's get through MLS Cup and uh, we'll figure out how that um, gets resolved at some point in the near future. I want to ask you about Liga MX and MLS. From some people I'm speaking to, I'm hearing that global soccer authorities like FIFA and CONCACAF might not necessarily stand in the way if an MLS Liga MX merger might take place at some point. Is there anything you can tell me about that? Well, you know, let me start with, you know, we have a very close relationship with Liga Max, with the FMF, uh, and we represent the commercial rights for the Mexican national team and have for many, many years. Uh, I sit as a co-chair of the World Leagues Forum with Enrique Bonilla, and we both sit on the, uh, the FIFA Stakeholders Committee. Uh, so those relationships are long and deep. I know Emilia Scarga for as long as I've been in the in the soccer business, and I would consider him somebody that I'm friendly with and close to. Uh, and we continue to talk about how could our leagues be uh, closer in ways that matter most, which is from a competitive perspective. So as you know, we launched the Leagues Cup uh, uh, last year. We have our Campeones Cup, which have been great events, uh, and that will continue to uh, happen in 2021. Uh, but there's a long uh, road and a very, very complicated step to go from interleague competition from a tournament perspective to tearing up MLS as it exists today, tearing up Liga Max as it exists today, and then reorganizing as a singular you know, league in our two countries. That is a long way away. And you could imagine the difficulties. In essence, you would be tearing up the operating agreement that MLS owners have with each other uh, as part of the MLS structure and uh, forming it entirely differently. Uh, I was uh, like you hearing that there were discussions or at least receptivity to the general concept. Uh, and I think that's great, uh, but we are a long way away from a merger between our two leagues. You're not denying it though. Denying what, that it could happen? Yeah. You know, I've said from the day I got into this seat, you know, in, uh, in 1999, Grant, that imagine what a merge league would look like. Imagine uh, how that would accelerate the interest and value. Uh, so I would not say that it, I'm uh, not being evasive and I'm trying to be cute. Uh, I'm not saying that if you could pull this off, it wouldn't be uh, a remarkable uh, opportunity, but just I, I need everybody to understand what the obstacles are to that. It would be, think we will have 30 teams soon, 30 teams soon. And you take all the teams in the Mexican first division, you're not going to have a league with what could be as many as 50 teams, right? It would have to be entirely restructured. Some teams would be in, some teams would be out. There were all sorts of structural issues. They don't have a CBA with their players. They don't have the same organizational operational uh, structure that we do. Uh, they don't share revenue the way we do. I mean, you could go down the list and I would imagine that at some point somebody could figure out how to address all those issues. Uh, but to think that it, it would be in the near future or something that is uh, 
um, going to happen anytime soon is um, not something people should be thinking is going to happen. I still love talking about this type of stuff. Um MLS has two more years on its current domestic TV deal with ESPN, Fox Sports, and Univision. Obviously, the next TV deal is a huge one for the league. How would you describe the forces in play in the industry right now as MLS tries to get the best TV deal possible starting in 23? You know, I'm optimistic, Grant, about uh, the, the shifting media landscape. You start thinking about the uh, the availability of soccer programming or football programming to a very, very broad and growing audience here in the United States and Canada. And that's empowering. You look at the age of our fan base and our viewership, which is younger than all the other major leagues. Many of them have been born on digital uh, content consumption. You know that well. So the idea that we would be um, valuable to these new streaming services is something that uh, we're optimistic about. Uh, we have great relationships with our three broadcast partners. All of them continue to support and, and love the league. We've had almost 50 network broadcasts this year, network meeting on uh, the broad non-cable carriers, not sports channel carriers. So that is a commitment, clearly a pandemic related commitment, but that's a big time commitment from ABC, Fox and from Univision, uh, ESPN, Fox and Univision. And I'm encouraged by, by all of that. Also, you know, key point too, Grant, all of our agreements on every piece of content that we have uh, end coterminously. They all end in 2022. Every local broadcast, every out-of-market broadcast, every network broadcast, English, Spanish language, any other language is obviously French, and all of our international rights. So we will be going to the market with an almost unprecedented package in our industry where we would be taking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of broadcasts and looking to uh, secure partners uh, in ways that uh, we were not, never able to do in the past. How is that timeline going to work between now and 23? You know, our agreements ex uh, expire at the end of 22. There are obviously renewal dates within that. We've already begun the process. Uh, we began many years ago in preparing for this by ensuring that all of our agreements were uh, ending at the same time and a lot of planning going on. We've got a uh, gentleman by the name of Gary Stevenson, who runs Soccer United Marketing, MLS Business Ventures, a brilliant guy, very sad, uh, media savvy, worked at the NBA, started the uh, Pac-12 network. So Gary's a very, very talented guy leading that effort. And we've got a great ownership group with a ton of experience in this space. Do you think the MLS broadcast rights will be bundled with the U.S. soccer, men's and women's national teams, TV rights like they were and are in your current deal? You know, that's way too premature to even discuss, Grant. You know, we've got to have a discussion with U.S. soccer about the renewal of our long-term relationship with them. It began in 2002. Uh, we've been great partners for them. They've been great partners for us. We've invested, as I've said on your show many times, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in the Federation over the many years that we've been partners together. But they've got to go through a process. They've got a new uh, commercial head in Dave Wright, and they've got a new CEO in Will Wilson. Uh, these guys are experienced and savvy, and uh, we'll, uh, when our windows open up for negotiation, we'll begin those discussions with them. Now, you are on the board of the U.S. Soccer Federation as well. You have been for a while. Uh, this year has felt like 10 years, but like earlier this year, that federation was in turmoil, and, and the president, Carlos Cordero, resigned. Uh, 
there's a new CEO, as you mentioned. How are you feeling right now about where U.S. soccer is, especially in comparison to earlier in the year and before that? U.S. soccer is in a much stronger, well-managed uh, and focused position uh, today than it was uh, several years ago. You know, Cindy Cohn, who came into this role almost inheriting it, has announced that she'll rerun for the presidency, has done a fantastic job. She's got broad support. She's got a, uh, a very uh, uh, focused and strategic way about thinking about her role as the president of the Federation. She very quickly ended what was a long, laborious CEO search process and, uh, and signed up Will Wilson, who's been getting up to speed. She's got great support uh, in, amongst the membership of U.S. soccer and great support uh, amongst the board. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, she quickly came in, was able to resolve a, a number of the litigations that were outstanding. I think she's got a real bead on uh, the CBA negotiations with both the men and the women. Uh, and I'm encouraged uh, by her, uh, the strength of her leadership and, uh, and, and very optimistic about our future. I think the Federation's in a good spot. Now, MLS did decide to delay the start of the team in Charlotte to 22 and St. Louis and Sacramento to 23, but Austin will still start next season in 2021. Why was Austin in a position to stay on schedule? Well, they were just much closer, uh, uh, Grant. They had a number of years of preparation. Again, they were granted the team and began their launch process in building their organization, building their brand, beginning the season ticket sales process uh, before we were granting the other expansion teams. So they were just in a better position uh, to move forward. Uh, clearly, the delays in Charlotte, St. Louis, and, uh, and Sacramento, COVID-related, struck construction delays are a part of that. Understandable, you know, there's limited construction, was limited construction in the early part of the pandemic. Uh, but I'm I'm optimistic again that we'll be uh, on target with those clubs. Charlotte launched their brand. St. Louis had record-setting uh, ticket sales; fifty thousand accounts were open. That's an unprecedented number. Uh, we're seeing great progress, obviously, in uh, in Austin. I mean, you don't you don't have to just listen to Matthew McConaughey to get excited about what's happening down there. Anthony Precourt's done a terrific job hiring staff, getting their stadium built and ready to open. Lots of season tickets sold, season ticket waiting lists. So, you know, uh, the, the pandemic set everyone back uh, and it's had its effect on Major League Soccer for sure. Uh, but I'm uh, really excited about what 21 will look like. And also, Grant, remember, we're not only opening a stadium uh, in Austin, but we're going to open up two new stadiums next year in the state of Ohio. You know, we'll be opening up a new stadium for Columbus, which happened super quick and opening up our uh, stadium in Charlotte. So, but there's a lot of activity going on next year. This episode is brought to you by a streaming service I use that I love. It's called Fanatis with a Z, and you can watch all the action in Spain's La Liga and other international leagues and tournaments live and on demand from your favorite device, whether it's a mobile phone, tablet, or directly on your TV with the Fanatis app. You can also watch the top leagues from France, Brazil, and Argentina. Plus, Fanatis has the Copa Libertadores, which is one of my favorite tournaments in the world. This weekend, Fanatis has Real Madrid Atletico Madrid, Barcelona Levante, and PSG Lyon. Fanatis features channels you know, like BN Sports in English and Spanish, Gold TV, and many more. 
and it costs as little as $7.99 a month. If you'd like to try Fanatis for yourself, you can get a free week-long trial by clicking on the link in the episode description or going to fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. One more time, that's fntz.co slash grant hyphen fz. Thank you very much to Fanatis for sponsoring this episode. Fanatis, the world's largest stadium. Question for you personally, how many more years do you have on your current contract as commissioner? And how many more years do you want to be doing this job? You ask me that every year, Grant, so I, I, you're <laughs> consistent. You know, uh, I am uh, signed up through uh, 2023, and um, I, you know, I, I'm sure I will continue to, uh, to stay here through that role. But, uh, you know, I've been in this job a long time. I have no desire to set any records for being the commissioner of a sports league. These last couple of years have been uh, very rewarding, but challenging. So I'll make that decision with the MLS uh, governance committee at the right time. Now, I know you were extremely busy this summer with the MLS bubble tournament, and you and I weren't able to square away time for me to interview you for my podcast series on the Freddie Adu story. So I, I do want to ask you now, when you look back on the craziness around Freddie Adu in 2004, when MLS was in a very different place with 10 teams and you had only been in the commissioner's position for five years, you had a 14-year-old doing national TV ads with Pele and being the biggest story your league had ever seen. What stands out the most to you when you look back at that? And, and do you have any regrets about how the league handled the situation then? Well, again, you know, Grant, I, I don't, uh, first of all, it was a very memorable time. And I, I, don't, I don't think we get a chance to talk about this that much. And I know you've written a great book on David and, uh, and David Beckham. And I've looked back on some of the big stories in the league uh, that are incredible moments, right? And it kind of started with Landon. Right. And if I think back, what's the first thing that comes to mind? It's Landon Donovan. Uh, it then is, you know, what happened with the MLS strike force in 2002, you know, the Michael and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, actually it was way before Michael it was Brian McBride and it was Clint Dempsey and it was Landon, Clint Mathis, all these guys that are, you know, still in the business in many ways. Uh, and, and then Freddie comes along, right. And I'm going to go past Freddie for a second. And then, Robbie Keane comes and, and Beckham comes and uh, Henri comes into the league and David Villa and, and you have uh, and, and Zlatan, who I was asked yesterday, how could he not be in the top 25 players? I think absolutely he should be. It just goes to show the league isn't picking these, uh, these players or these great moments. Uh, but, but Freddie sort of was the first time that we got, got off the sports pages and being viewed as a niche upstart uh, to being something that was entering the mainstream. You know, he was this phenomenon uh, that uh, was so unexpected. And it, it sort of gave us this view that MLS had the potential to be bigger than uh, the original founders thought it would be in its earliest years. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed the time that I spent with him. I enjoyed the moments that I was able to witness with him in the league. Uh, I've seen uh, all these comments over the years and what the league did to him. I don't think we did anything. It was a confluence of circumstances where Freddie, his management, his agent, his family, 
uh, those around him, as you've reported in your podcast, uh, all sort of seized a moment. And that moment was driven by Freddie's desire to be in that moment. And it didn't work out quite for him the way people had hoped. Uh, that's not the first or not last time that that happens with a young, promising athlete. We all remind ourselves, I hear it every time there's a young, great player, let's not, let's not over-promote this guy so that X doesn't happen. I don't think this is about individuals or entities making those decisions. These are things that just create a life of their own. And that's what happened with Freddie. Do you think Mike Pecky I interviewed because he was a teammate of Freddie's in D.C. in 04 when they won the title in Freddie's first year. He thinks that it wouldn't be a bad thing for Freddie to do some work for the league at some point, maybe even with like orientation of, of teenagers uh, about what the experience can be like and, and what to do and potentially not do. Because Freddie's a charismatic guy still. And yeah. he's not bitter from my experience would you entertain that possibility? You know, we have a great, uh, I don't know that many people know about it, Grant. We've got a guy that came to us from the NCAA, University of Mississippi, the NFL, who runs our player engagement group. His name is Jamil Northcutt. And Jamil runs the area that manages the indoctrination programs and all the, uh, the things that, that we need with our union, our players to focus on when they enter the league at whatever age. So, you know, whether Freddie is looking for a life after playing, I know he's now playing in, in Sweden yeah. and uh, has, I don't know what his, his post-career thoughts are, but, you know, certainly we need to be, all leagues need to be thinking about how do we ensure, particularly with our league, where we're assigning young players to pro contracts, that we're managing that properly. And whether Freddie's experienced in that or just hasn't experienced in that, is the difference between whether he'd be good at that, Grant. A couple more questions here for MLS Commissioner Don Garber. Really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, MLS had essentially a kind of Donald Sterling racism and harassment allegation situation this year with owner Deloy Hansen in Salt Lake. Hansen is out. The league looks like it's going to take over the sale process. And results of the league's investigation are coming soon. When you look back on how the league has handled this, how do you feel about it? I feel really good about it, Grant. We went through a process again. We were fortunate that we were not the first to manage this. So we're able to learn from how our industry has been dealing with these kinds of issues. And what we've all been focused on is ensuring that we are uh, uh, communicating effectively with our, our owners, with our players, with our staffs on what is acceptable to behavior, what is it that we will not tolerate as it relates to uh, what people say and how they act and what they do? And, and I feel really good about the MLS, uh, MLS's record and our experience in standing uh, uh, for uh, uh, racial and, and social justice, right? And maybe we'll talk about that a bit too. And every now and again, you have something that happens that you have to address. And we've addressed that uh, with Deloitte Hansen. We've gone through a very extensive uh, investigation. It was managed by one of the top law firms in the country. Uh, Deloitte has agreed to sell his interest in soccer in the state of Utah, and uh, we will manage that once we get through it all and uh, are, are ready to talk about what our findings are publicly. Now, I was told that you mentioned the social justice protests, which are a huge part of what this year will be remembered for in our country. Um, I was told that pretty early on in the Black Lives Matter protests, you had a sort of teleconference with 
some black players in the league, some of whom went on to form the the Black Players for Change group, and that it it was a pretty intense conversation. And I was wondering if you could describe what that was like from your perspective. Sure. You know, I, I think, Grant, it's this is not just uh, an issue that the leader of one business, Major League Soccer, has experienced. I think when George Floyd was killed, it sort of created this enormous uh, outcry for uh, all sorts of, uh, of leaders to start uh, recognizing uh, that we all haven't done enough to address uh, issues of racism and social injustice uh, in our, uh, our leadership roles in running a business or being a key leader in an industry. So, you know, our first, my first discussion started with my MLS staff that formed an organization called Pitch Black number of black executives who in the middle of the pandemic and our labor negotiations uh, had concerns about how public the league was in addressing these issues during that period of time. Uh, that then led to the Black Players for Change forming. Uh, and I had very, not just one, but many conversations with Justin Morrow and the rest of, uh, of 170 people on that group. At one point, I think almost all of them were on a call. Uh, and uh, they, they've been very organized. I've been talking about this a lot publicly. They've created uh, some terrific programs. They've formed uh, a number of different initiatives. They've worked with the league on, on getting support for that. They're going to be part of a, a diversity committee that we have uh, formed at the MLS uh, ownership level that will include them and members of our uh, employees and technical people and, and coaches and the like, former MLS uh, players that are part of an organization called SCORE. And I, I speak with those groups uh, often. A, it's a personal uh, commitment that I've made to ensure that I'm doing my part, but also it's the responsible one to do that. You know, we have, even as small as Major League Soccer is on the global stage in this area, I think we've outpunched our weight. I think Black Players for Change are unique they're much larger, more focused. They're not individually focused as there have been instances in other leagues, uh, particularly here in the United States. And uh, we have the resources to be able to uh, uh, support and create some positive change. And I'm very committed to that. I had Kyle Kraus, the Iowa-based Parma owner on my podcast recently. And I asked him if he thought it was a smart business move for people to pay half a billion dollars to get into MLS when you could pay less than that for a team in a top European league right now. And he sort of said he wasn't sure. Uh, could you make the case for why investing that much in an MLS expansion team is a better choice than buying a European top flight team right now? Well, I think it really depends on what your interest is, Grant, right? I think many sports team owners come out of a specific community where they live and their, their investment strategy has a number of different uh, um, objectives to it. I mean, look at the Taylor family and what they've done in St. Louis from investing in and almost privately financing uh, the uh, recreation and, uh, and renovation of the Gateway National Park and the investments that they've made in the community and they're generationally based there. They love sport. They have a number of daughters that are interested in being involved in the sports business. It fit their family's desires to invest uh, in sports, and they wanted to 
have that team be a big part of the the rejuvenation of downtown St. Louis, which is what we've seen happen. Uh, and then you've got people that are coming out of this because they love the sport of soccer and they're really somewhat ambivalent to what market they and they just want to be involved in growing a sport that they deeply care about. And then you get a number of people that have uh, looked at the sports industry generally uh, and uh, whether it's soccer or another industry, they, they see a long-term value in it. And therefore you've got a plethora of, of uh, different personalities that look to invest in, uh, in Major League Soccer. The most important thing here is you, you need to satisfy some of those objectives because these teams are uh, investment properties, long-term investment properties. And they at times will require enormous capital before they can start making money. Uh, but when you look at the, the history of pro sports in North America, they've proven to be great investments because there are only a certain number of teams. When those teams trade, they trained at enormous values. When Andrew Houtman sold the Chicago Fire, it was an enormous return on his investment. And Phil Anschutz early on owned six MLS teams. And while that was entirely out of the critical needs at that time, he made money on the sale of those teams. So the question I would uh, you know, posit here is, are those investments in other teams or outside the United States proving to be good investments? And I think if you were to look at the vast majority of them, they've probably proven not to be as good uh, an investment as pro sports have been in North America, the other major leagues. The last thing I would say, Gwen, I think it's probably the most important. What gives MLS its real street cred in the global football world is the fact of how structured and focused and well-managed and well-governed we are. So all of the things that perhaps the, the folks on the internet and, and social media find challenging are what have made the other professional leagues in our country valuable because they're governed properly. And we have the ability to make decisions uh, from a business perspective and even from a competition perspective that ensure that our teams are strong and viable, viable financially because you're investing a half a billion dollars and you're not going to get the same return you'd get by putting it in the S&P. That was a long, a long answer, but man, I, I would I'd go toe to toe with anybody who wanted to buy a team in Europe and would see it as, the, as good an investment as investing in MLS or the NWSL for that matter, or the USL. MLS is committed to 30 teams right now. How many do you want to get to? You know, I, listen, 30 is where we, we are uh, focused at remaining. We've got, you know, still three teams that have got to hit the ground before we could even begin thinking about going uh, beyond that. I think once you get much beyond 30, you've got to start thinking about all sorts of ways to change the way our competition format works. And while we're going through, you know, a time period, and I've said this, Grant, I haven't said it probably for six months, we need to not just focus in this pandemic about what we need to do to survive, but focus on what we need to do long-term to thrive. And uh, while most of our time is spent on being sure we can get what we need to get done every day, we do need to think about our future. And we have a group of people that are doing that at the league office and at our board level. Last question, what are you most excited about for the year ahead? You know, I'm excited about uh, Austin coming on. I'm excited about our new stadiums coming on. We've had a great dynamic happen. I think it's the first time that I could really say that there's been a competition narrative in 2020. And that really was two different stories. The, the rise of the international player that wasn't necessarily the biggest name, 
but certainly those international players had enormous impact. Look at Reynoso in in uh, in Minnesota, and you know, look at Pozuelo, and 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 even listen. I, I think we got to look at Miami also. I mean, Pizarro is one of the stars of the Mexican national team. Uh, so you know, ultimately, I think you're seeing a great story there. Then you've got this great youth movement. And think about where we were years ago when I said this. And I think I was misquoted. We've got to become more of a selling league. It really was we need to have a balance between buying and selling. And we were mostly buying and not selling at all. And part of that is because we did not have the ability to see any maturity in our youth development system. So now we have academy programs and we have facilities, half a billion dollars of money that's been invested in these great facilities, the most recent one, look at what happened, the crafts did in New England. And they're now producing guys like Aronson. You know, they're, they're producing great players uh, that are performing in the world stage. And Alfonso Davies was developed in Vancouver. You know, I don't care what anybody says. I came through the Vancouver uh, Academy is one of the top rated, most valued young players in the world. And that then leads to the other thing I'm most excited for, which is MLS Next. You know, MLS Next is going to be a huge commitment from us. You know, 90% of the players or so that are on our respective national teams in the U.S. and Canada are playing in MLS Next academies. And that is going to be the real, you know, the, the ribbon on the, on, the, on the package of that, uh, that uh, strategy on player development that you'll start seeing great things coming out of in 21. The MLS Cup final between Columbus and Seattle is Saturday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on Big Fox. MLS Commissioner Don Garber, I always look forward to these annual chats. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks, Greg. Good luck to you. Stay safe. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I can't tell you how much that helps. I'd like to thank Don Garber as well as producer Chris Whittingham. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.